0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Lisette Pylant, Events Coordinator at the Boston Athenaeum. I'm very happy to welcome you all and to introduce our speaker. There are two ways for you to participate today. Depending upon your device, these will be at the top or bottom of your screen. First, the chat function. Please use it now to say hello and let us know where you're joining from. If you select all panelists and attendees, everyone will be able to see your comment. Second, the Q&A function. Please use it to ask questions. You can type those in at any time and they'll be addressed a little bit later on. If you're just getting to know the Athenaeum, it's an independent nonprofit library and cultural center located near the Park Street T in Boston. Our virtual events have welcomed more than 15,000 event- attendees so far. The Athenaeum building at 10 and a half Beacon Street is open to members and to the public. You can visit the first floor. We have day passes available and of course membership is open to everyone. Feel free to put your questions in the Q&A and we will be in touch. We invite you back here to the virtual Athenaeum every week to connect through our events. On Thursday, May 20th, author Lisa Napoli will join us in conversation with former Globe editor, Ellen Clegg, talking about Lisa's new book, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki: The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. Visit our website for details on this and other programs, and we hope to see you often. I'm happy now to introduce Ben Railton. He's the Professor of English Studies and Coordinator of American Studies at Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts. He is the author of five previous books, most recently, We the People, The 500-Year Battle Over Who is American. His public scholarly work includes his American Studies blog and a column for the Saturday Evening Post. Ben is here to talk about his most recent book, Of The I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism, He will define four forms of American patriotism, tracing them across the span of US history and allowing us to see familiar events and texts with new eyes. Welcome, Ben.
1: Thank you so much, Lisette. Um, I I really appreciate that intro.
0: And and thank you to
1: Victoria O'Malley and everybody at the Boston Athenaeum for um, helping make this happen. And thanks especially to all of you uh, for being here, taking a little time out in the middle of your. Tuesday or earlier, uh, depending on where you are, but to to be part of this conversation for that last book, We the People, I got to give a book talk at the Athenaeum, in in the Athenaeum. And I'll admit, I am greatly missing being in that space, being surrounded by the history, the culture, the art, just the presence of it and the community in person. Look forward to being able to do that down the road um, for sure, but really glad to have the chance to keep the conversations going this way as well. And it is a conversation, and the last thing I'll say before I share my slides and get started is there will be definitely time at the end to to, uh, follow up those questions and thoughts of yours in those different ways that was was mentioning. But then please keep the conversation going beyond today as well. My last slide is some of my contact info, including an email address, that's a great way to reach me. Um, And I really hope you'll keep the conversation going, share further thoughts, ideas, follow-ups, questions, all of it um, after today as well, I, I look forward to that. So let me, to use one of the most familiar phrases of the last year, let me share my screen and we will get started. All right, so as Lizette mentioned, uh, this book talk is based on this most recent book of mine, Of The I Sing. As we get started, I have to apologize because the first thing I'm going to do very briefly, I promise, is make us cast our minds back to January of this past year, um, January 2021. And in a year of consistent, constant conflicts, um, despite all of that for the whole year, I would say January might qualify as the most conflicted month, not only of this last year, but really um, one of the most conflicted months for a long time, maybe in American history. And as has so often been the case, and as is one of my starting points for this book, at the heart of those conflicts, among other things, but one key debate at the heart of those conflicts is the debate over patriotism, over what it means to be a patriot, over who is and is not a patriot, over this question of our allegiance, our love, our connection, our relationship to this nation and everything that is part of it. And in particular, I just want to very briefly note two quotes that are part of maybe the two most conflicted moments in that very conflicted month, very different in type and in focus, but both very conflicted and both with this idea of patriotism as a part of what was at their heart. And these quotes aren't the only ways to note that, but they are good examples of that. The first and most obvious such conflict is the January 6th insurrection in Washington, DC. And this is a quote from a really great article in the nation magazine, which followed a, a, around many of those who took part in that insurrection. Um, Andrew McCormick is the, the journalist who, who followed them and then wrote this, this article on, on those days events. And in this quote in particular, uh, this is after the police had begun to fire tear gas at some of the insurrectionists. And as McCormick writes, this is not America, a woman said to a small group, her voice shaking. She was crying and hysterical. They're shooting at us. They're supposed to shoot Black Lives Matter but they're shooting the patriots. So there you see one quote, one moment with this idea of patriot is doing a lot of work. And I'll briefly say a little about some of the work I think it's doing, but then my whole talk is meant to continue us thinking about some of the work that is present and not present in in the way she's using that idea of patriotism. And then we see even more overt discussion of patriotism in another very conflicted moment later in the month, which was the release on MLK day of the 1776 commission report, this report, about the state of education and history and patriotism among other things in the United States. The goal of that commission as it stated it in the report was restoring patriotic education that teaches the truth about America. And then uh, the reports authors contrasted their work explicitly with the work happening, for example, in universities in the United States, which they called hotbeds of anti-Americanism that generate in students and the culture at the very least to stand and at worst outright hatred, that idea of the opposite or an opposite of patriotism for this country. And so I'm going to talk more about these concepts in a second, but I would say both of these quotes do two things. They express a very particular form of patriotism. It's the form that I define in this project as mythic patriotism, which celebrates America, but very specific visions of America, exclusionary ones, I argue, ones that leave out as much as they include. Um, and At the same time, and relatedly, what these visions also do is define any who are critical, particularly critical of that mythic vision of America, as unpatriotic, as anti-American, as enemies of the United States, whereas I would argue and will argue briefly today that such critiques are another form of patriotism, one that I define as critical patriotism. So I think we can see that conflict between those two types, especially mythic and critical patriotism, very much present in both of these January 2021 moments. And they are at the heart of the histories that I try to trace across eight different time periods and up to the present in this book. This is just quickly the cover of that book of the icing. I'm going to talk uh, a bit about uh, one of the guys on the top, Colin Kaepernick, later. I'm not going to talk specifically today about The War of 1812, that that bottom illustration is from, it's an illustration of Francis Scott Key looking at the flag and composing in his head, presumably what became the Star-Spangled Banner. I write about that in a a chapter of the book that I won't be talking about today, but those two images already express, of course, two very different visions of patriotism. And what I'm gonna do today is just for a couple minutes each talk about these four categories that my book seeks to define and then trace across different historical periods, as well as very briefly how America the Beautiful The poem turned song by Wellesley professor Catherine Lee Bates, in its four verses, exemplifies these four categories briefly. I'm then going to delve a little bit more into one of the book's chapters and one part of one of those chapters, which is the early 20th century. It's chapter five in my book Um, and talk about the, the idea of mythic patriotism and all the layers of it that we can see in that one moment about 100 years ago all of which echo our own moment very fully, I would argue. And then I'm going to also briefly trace the idea of critical patriotism, that most explicit alternative to mythic patriotism, by looking at just a few examples of it, um, very briefly from across the last few centuries of American life. So first of all, got to very, very quickly define these four types. These are all quotes and details that are part of the intro of my book in particular. I'm not gonna to, going to read the quotes at length, but I put them here in case you're able to take a look at them as I'm briefly talking. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about particularly the second and no, sorry, the first and third types, celebratory and active patriotism, which I'm not gonna uh, delve into at the same length in this talk. So please feel free to follow up if you have questions or further thoughts about them. By celebratory patriotism, I really mean, I think, what is the most familiar version, the version of patriotism in the United States, which is defined by taking part in shared rituals that express love, affection, connection, loyalty, allegiance, et cetera, to that nation, to the United States of America, taking part in the singing of the National Anthem, in the Pledge of Allegiance, in various forms of expression of a kind of celebration of the nation and our participation, in that celebration, our shared collective celebrations. That most familiar type, I think, is is certainly one that's worth continuing to engage, and it's this idea of celebratory patriotism as I define it. And I want to be really clear, quickly, but I hope clear, that I don't see this type as necessarily problematic or a bad thing, certainly not a bad thing necessarily. I have, I know there are scholars or voices who would, and I, I understand and, and, and it's important to engage with those critiques just of, of patriotism at all. But I think there can be real collective value in these shared celebrations, in, in bringing us together and bringing those members of a nation, of a community together to take part in these celebratory patriotic expressions. Very often, I think, they turn into the second category, the much more exclusionary category, and I'll get to that in a second. But they don't have to. There's no reason why celebratory patriotism can't be shared, can't really be collective. And if it can be, then I think it has a value in defining a community and allowing that community to feel connected and to feel that sense of shared pride in in our shared identity and community. And the first verse of Catherine Lee Bates' America the Beautiful offers one quick example of of what I would call that sort of shared celebratory patriotism. Uh, I'm not gonna talk at length about America the Beautiful. I do in the intro of the book. It's really interesting how Catherine Lee Bates, this Wellesley English professor composes it as part of a cross country train trip. In 1893, she visits the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, she sees a lot of the country, ends up in Colorado where she's teaching for the summer, um, and in particular ascends Pike's Peak, that really beautiful spot in Colorado, and sort of completes composing um, this this poem that becomes uh, the song, America the Beautiful, during that process and culminating in that Pike's Peak hike. And so the first verse, it's celebratory patriotism, really expresses that vision of beauty, of a nation's beauty that the title of the song suggests, including this idea of of what that beauty is exemplified by, purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain, et cetera, some of the quotes we're all familiar with. That's the verse that is the most frequently performed, both for reasons of of, uh, time, but also I would argue because it is the most easily shared. It is the most clearly sort of collectively celebratory of, of the beauties of this nation. Now it does leave out, explicitly leave out Native American communities, that verse and and the song as a whole, and I'll get to that more in a second. Pikes Peak, for example, had not that long before 1893 been taken from um, indigenous communities in Colorado. And so even in that celebratory patriotism, there is a form of exclusion, but celebrations of, a, of our collective beauties are something that, that can generally shared an expression of a celebratory celebratory patriotism that can truly be collected however far too often celebratory patriotism turns into the second type what i've already started to talk a little bit about with those january quotes mythic patriotism and by mythic patriotism i mean two two levels of a form of patriotism that excludes that creates and depends on a particular myth a particular set of myths about American history, American identity, and idealized vision of a very particular United States. And in doing features two forms of exclusion at the same time. One of which is excluding various communities and histories from that mythic vision, um, uh, leaving them out of the story in various ways in order to create that mythic vision. And then the other just as as present and, and concurrent exclusion is again leaving out explicitly any who don't agree with that mythic vision, who critique it or in one way or another challenge it. They are defined um, in this vision of mythic patriotism as unpatriotic, un-American, explicitly opposed to patriotism and to the United States itself. And uh, Catherine Lee Bates doesn't express that second uh, form of exclusion, but she does uh, in her second verse of America the Beautiful feature what I would call a form of mythic patriotism in the way that that verse celebrates uh, the pilgrims as an American origin point our Massachusetts, New England uh, pilgrim histories as a very particular idealized and exclusionary origin point for the United States. And you see that most especially in the second part of this quote from the start of that verse, oh beautiful for pilgrim feet whose stern impassioned stress, a thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness. And I'm not saying again that there aren't things worth celebrating in various forms of celebratory patriotism and history, such as the pilgrims. But in those last two clauses, there's a lot that is excluded, right? For example, all those communities who were excluded from Puritan pilgrim Massachusetts, um, who were not allowed to practice freely uh, their, their religion or their identities, including people like Anne Hutchinson, Roger Williams, Um, Thomas Morton, many others, but then most especially who's excluded from that mythic vision are Native American communities, indigenous ones, in viewing this place as a wilderness uh, prior to that pilgrim arrival or or during that pilgrim um, unfolding history, and of course not acknowledging in any way both the presence and the contributions of indigenous communities to those pilgrim histories and to the origins of the United States as well. It's a quick moment, but it includes multiple forms of mythic patriotism, multiple exclusions that are part of that idealized origin point narrative of the pilgrims that that first creates. And that's just what I'll get much more deeply into mythic patriotism and some of the real exclusionary ways it can work um, in a couple minutes. So celebratory patriotism and mythic patriotism are not identical, but what they both are, are in one way or another, I would argue, more passive collective celebrations of already existing histories, already existing ideas, already existing visions of the nation. So part of my goal in this project is not to say again that those are always fundamentally problematic or wrong. I certainly don't believe that about celebratory patriotism, but to suggest also that there are alternatives. There are other ways to define patriotism, other ways to think about this concept and to trace it across our history. And those are my third and fourth categories, active and critical. And I'm gonna get more fully into critical in a few, active I'm just briefly touching on here. And both of these categories, as I say in the middle of this slide, besides being again, just alternatives, express more active possibilities, possibilities where in the present Americans can in one way or another take action that helps move the nation forward towards something different rather than simply celebrates an existing identity or set of histories. So active patriotism by that I mean as it says here action in service of and very often sacrifice for this vision of the nation and I would argue not just a past vision but an ongoing present and future vision as well. Um, and there's a great example of that, active patriotism, an expression of it in the third verse of America the Beautiful, where Catherine Lee Bates turns her attention to the Civil War and specifically Union soldiers and, and perhaps especially the Union dead, those who gave their lives for the Union cause. And she, she writes of them, oh, beautiful, for heroes who proved in liberating strife that more than self their country loved. Um, and in particular, I would highlight the phrase in liberating strife. This is a vision of the Civil War which I share, that it was conducted explicitly to free um, other Americans or free Americans. Of course, many African-Americans fought on that union side as well, to free enslaved Americans. And that liberating strife is an ideal that these active patriots dedicated themselves to even to the point of death. Um, valued more than their life, loved more than their life. And so it's a vision of active patriotism, service and sacrifice for an ideal that was yet to be accomplished, that was a goal, that was an aspiration. And that's, I think, a key part of how I would define active patriotism. So that's one type. Um, I'm happy to keep talking about that toward the end if you're interested. But the type I'm going to talk in the last part of my talk about is this fourth category, critical patriotism, which I think is most explicitly opposed to mythic patriotism. If mythic patriotism is, again, a celebration of an idealized, exclusionary, existing narrative of America, then critical patriotism represents a critique and challenge of such ideas, a critique of various aspects of America's shortcomings and failures and flaws, with that goal still of pushing the nation toward a more perfect union, toward a more genuinely ideal future. Um, You can see an expression of this in part, for example, in Howard Zinn's famous quote that Uh, possibly paraphrasing or quoting someone like Jefferson, although I've never seen that verified, so Zinn is the one who I know said it, that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. But I would go further. It's not just dissent itself, although yes, there's real patriotic value in that. But again, it's dissent in service of pushing the nation closer to its ideals. That I really want to define as the two steps of this critical patriotism, the critique and in service of pushing the nation forward. And in her fourth verse of America the Beautiful, briefly, but I think interestingly, Catherine Lee Bates does express what I would call an example of of critical patriotism, based in part on having seen that World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, um, where she writes about a beautiful for patriot dream that sees beyond the years, thine alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. There's a bit of a religious connotation to be sure in this idea, but it's a patriot dream. This isn't a Christian dream. This isn't a religious dream in any way that she's explicitly defining. It's a patriot dream. It's a vision of the nation, a vision of the future of that nation that is better than the present, undimmed by human tears, that can move closer toward that ideal. And that really, again, is the other part of critical patriotism to me. The critique, which is not explicitly identifying here, but which there would have been plenty to critique in 1893 America, of course. And Bates was married, or uh, married is is the wrong word. She was in a lifelong romantic partnership um, with Catherine Como, a really interesting economics professor at Wellesley, who wrote one of the first economic histories of the United States and was very much a, a socialist in many ways. And so I think Bates would have shared many of those critiques of where America was in 1893, but she's imagining here Sorry, Comerford is Catherine's last name. Catherine Comerford is her her life partner, that economist. And she's imagining here, not only the possibility of of something different, but of pushing the nation toward that, a patriot dream that moves the nation closer to that idea. That's at the heart of critical patriotism. So those are my four categories. And again, for the next and remaining part of this talk, I'm gonna talk explicitly about the second and the fourth, mythic and critical, which really are in many ways, the two most explicitly contrasted ones at the heart of this book. I trace them across all eight of my time periods from the Revolutionary War up to the 1980s in my final chapter. And then I try to bring them up to the present a little in my conclusion um, of the book. Today, I'm gonna talk explicitly about mythic patriotism through one of those chapters, one of those moments, chapter five, the early 20th century, about a hundred years ago. Um, As a case study, I talk about all four types in every chapter, but I believe this period is a particularly striking case study in mythic patriotism and one that really echoes with many aspects of our own moment. So I'm just going to trace a few examples of that for a couple minutes here. And it it starts, as many examples of mythic patriotism do in my book, with political leaders and with laws and policies, which all too often have embodied uh, mythic patriotism's effects, its visions and effects on American communities. Um, And so, for example, Woodrow Wilson, president, uh, during the the teens, throughout his presidency, really argues for a couple of laws that I would call deeply mythic patriotic laws, the Espionage and Sedition Acts, as they come to be known. And as early as 1915 in his State of the Union, Wilson is asking Congress to pass such laws. And he makes that case explicitly through, as you see in this quote, an argument about those who are unpatriotic, those who are treasonous, who are opposed to the United States. And he links that among other communities, to immigrant Americans, arguing that there are citizens who've been born under other flags, who've been welcomed under our general naturalization laws, um, but who pour the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life. And he contrasts those treasonous voices to these kind of idealized visions of us, of an American us, the honor and self-respect of the nation depend on us, passing laws that will Target and exclude these unpatriotic, treasonous communities. Um, and, and when those laws are passed, they very much uh, seek to do that, um, to embody and enact that mythic patriotism and its vision of those who are not patriotic. And for example, the Sedition Act does it very strikingly, um, which is the second of the, two, of the two the Espionage Act is 1917, the Sedition Act 1918, by, for example, making illegal any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States or among other things, the flag of the United States. And those terms are intentionally, I think, wide-ranging and capacious in what they can include. Any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the government, the flag, are deemed illegal or made illegal under this 1918 Sedition Act. And the effects of that are present in a number of striking moments right away. But one that I want to highlight, because it's particularly striking, I think, of, of the effects of such mythic patriotic Laws, exclusionary laws, are, are those which affect this film and the producer of it in particular. A 1917 silent film called The Spirit of 76. This is a silent film about the Revolutionary War. Um, And it's produced, among other producers, but mainly produced by a Jewish-American immigrant um, uh, originally from Germany named Robert Goldstein. And because it's a film about the Revolutionary War, as you might expect, it critiques the British. It depicts the British as the enemies of the colonists, the revolutionaries, the new United States. But in this era, during World War I, after the Sedition Act, uh, Britain was the U.S.'s ally. And so under the Sedition Act, Goldstein is charged with sedition for producing this silent film about the Revolutionary War. And he is convicted of sedition and sentenced to 10 years in prison for producing this movie, and at his sentencing his judge, Benjamin Bledsoe, as you see here, says to him, count yourself lucky that you didn't commit treason in a country lacking America's right to a trial by jury. You'd already be dead. So this idea that it is treasonous to have offered this different vision, in this case, not even of the U.S., but of one of its allies in this moment, Um that it, it rises to the level of sedition and treason and, and is punishable under this law. So you can see there are not just a mythic patriotic vision of a celebration that cannot be challenged on multiple levels, but of the effects of it on cultural figures, on cultural works, on, on many different layers of a society, and I trace a few different ones in the chapter. But there are other layers to mythic patriotism in this era as well. So just to touch on a couple others briefly. One of them is the vision of labor and the labor movement as also unpatriotic, needing to be excluded, representing a threat to the United States. And that's expressed particularly clearly by this guy, Bishop William Quayle, um, a Methodist bishop in Baltimore who delivers a speech at a Baltimore church in February 1920. Uh, He had become pretty well known during World War I and remained so into the 20s. And in this speech, he makes the case that organized labor threatens the very existence of our Republican form of government, that it is a challenge against all we have and are In government, but he really means in this nation. And as such, it is our duty as American citizens to crush this foe, to crush the labor movement, and that if we don't, it will banish political liberty from the land. And one thing I found really consistently in expressions of mythic patriotism and their exclusion of others is that they enact what they pretend to critique. Quayle is arguing that it is the labor movement that will banish political liberty, but he is arguing for banishing liberty, at least when it comes to something like the labor movement and activism. He is actively seeking to do that banishing in service of his mythic patriotic vision. And among other things, this view of labor leads to an entire sort of plan on behalf of the manufacturing industry. The National Association of Manufacturers create at a national meeting in the early 1920s what they call the American plan, very tellingly, which seeks to crush the labor movement in a variety of ways, including using armed auxiliary kind of police forces to crush labor actions and labor labor activists, among many other ways of seeking to do what Quayle is arguing for, to crush this, in this frame, unpatriotic, un-American foe. That's all connected as well to another thing that's happening in this period, which is the widespread fears of communism and socialism that become known as the Red Scare. Um, Just a couple quotes that exemplify how much mythic patriotism is tied to those Red Scare fears. Uh, One of them comes from that guy, Ol Hansen, the author of that book, Americanism versus Bolshevism. Um, There's a general strike in Seattle where he's mayor in January 1919. Uh, A paper warns of that strike that this is America, not Russia. Again, seeing such actions as explicitly un-American, foreign. And Hansen makes the same case. The time has come for the people in Seattle to show their Americanism. Um, and again, he makes that extended case in this book that Americanism explicitly is contrasted not only with a foreign nation like the Soviet Union, but with these ideas, with these activisms, these actions with these American communities, like those who are protesting um, and those who are on strike. And the president makes the same basic case. Later that year, in September 1919, there's a police strike in Boston, very prominently, and Wilson calls that a crime against civilization. Again, not a labor action, not an activism between different parts of that, that world or communities, but crime against civilization. And and we see the effects of that, among other places, in this editorial in the Ohio State Journal, which argues that when a policeman strikes, he should not only be debarred from being a policeman, but should lose his citizenship, should be kicked out of the United States, in short, um, for participating in such an action. So again, seeing it as entirely foreign, defining it as as unpatriotic, un-American, such activisms and such actions, that's all layered into this, this larger set of fears and narratives, mythic patriotic narratives at the heart of the Red Scare. That also leads to other anti-immigrant perspectives, narratives, and eventually laws. It, it, first of all, it leads just in general to a series of ideological deportations. I wanted to quickly note a great recent book, a Julia Rose crowd's Threat of Dissent about ideological deportation, about how such mythic patriotic narratives especially can literally exclude Americans um, deport them from the US. And we see such arguments in the development of the first national immigration laws in this period as well. Uh, The laws that become the 1921 and, and then 1924, Quota Acts. Tomorrow is actually the 100th anniversary of the Emergency Quota Act of 1921, which then is, is made more permanent with the 1924 Act, the Johnson-Reed Act as it's known. And in one such speech on the Senate floor in support of that 1924 law by a South Carolina Senator Ellison Durant Smith, we see this mythic patriotic vision and the way it becomes part of that there. Um, he's making the case for why the time has arrived when we should pass such exclusionary, discriminatory anti-immigration laws. And he says, thank God we have in America, perhaps the largest percentage of any country in the world of the pure unadulterated Anglo-Saxon stock. And it is for the preservation of that splendid stock that has characterized us, that identity, that American identity that he is explicitly defining as that particular white supremacist Anglo-Saxon ideal. Um, And he then links that later in the speech explicitly to such ideas as America's progress, the genius of our government, the realization of the dream of those who wrote the constitution. They are all caught up, all those ideals, all those mythic patriotic visions of American history are caught up in this vision of, of what we are and what we are not, of culture and identity and that white supremacist narrative. So that's really at the heart of the development and passage of those immigration laws and policies in this period. And then the last one from the period that I'll highlight is what that means in terms of how those who dissent in one way or another from that narrative are treated, those who offer alternatives, both in their, in their lives and identities and in their voices and activism. So the two communities I'm just quickly noting here are African-American World War I soldiers and the suffrage activists who, among other things, take part in the silent sentinel action in Washington, DC. Um, African-American soldiers just in their very identities represent, I would argue, a, an alternative to something like uh, those exclusionary white supremacist narratives of American patriotism and identity. And there's no it's no coincidence that the year-long series of massacres that come to be known as the Red Summer of 1919, it's not just the summer, it's really February to October, very often start with lynchings or attacks on African-American soldiers, very often in uniform coming back from the war, um, because they represent that alternative. Um, and they are attacked and targeted by this year long orgy of, of, of violence, racial terrorism and violence. And in their own way, the silent sentinels are, are attacked too. Again, they are suffrage protesters who begin this silent protest first outside the White House and then in Lafayette Square in Washington in 1917. And they continue it for a couple of years up until the, the ratification of the uh, uh, 19th amendment. But throughout that period, they are targeted by official violence, the silent sentinels um, are repeatedly arrested and targeted for violence, most especially during one night that comes to be known as the, the night of terror when a group of those silent sentinel protesters who have been arrested and taken to the brutal Ocaguan workhouse prison in Virginia are terrorized, beaten and terrorized for an entire night through by a group of police officers um, in uh, November 1917. So these challenges are, are targeted explicitly with violence, both rhetorical and actual, because they do represent, I would argue, these alternatives to to those mythic patriotic exclusionary visions, but they don't stop. And this is a transition to my last section as well. Those critical patriotic voices and communities don't, they persist despite those attacks. Um, And we see that with African-American soldiers and their allies, such as in this really striking and powerful W.E.B. Du Bois um, editorial for his uh, crisis magazine that he uh, founds and edits for the NAACP just a couple years before this. In May, 1919, he writes this editorial, Returning Soldiers about that community's critical patriotism going forward in America. We return from fighting. We return fighting, fighting for this different America. And then uh, one example of the Silent Sentinels' um, continued activism and critical patriotism is Alice Paul pictured here, one of the leaders of that group, one of those who was imprisoned and beaten that night and imprisoned multiple times. And during one of her imprisonments, she goes on a hunger strike. Another expression of her active and critical patriotism, and a doctor uh, writing up a report about her when asked if there's any way to get her to stop writes, she has a spirit like Joan of Arc, and it is useless to try to change it. She will die, but she will never give up. So again, that wedding of active and critical patriotism in service of that cause, and of course, that cause is is achieved by that community um, uh, with the, the passage of that amendment and the gaining of the right to vote. So. An era that really defines multiple layers of mythic patriotism, I think all of which in one way or another we can continue to see echoed in our own moment. But also, as with any American time period, alternatives, visions of critical patriotism, among other categories, present at the same time and offering very different possibilities for how we think about patriotism and America. And then just briefly, I'm going to turn to a couple other examples of that um, for my last couple minutes here. Very, very quickly. There's more to say about all of these. They, they're from multiple chapters of the book, and I'm just very quickly touching on a couple each from the 19th, 20th and 21st centuries. From the 19th, I'm going to highlight just one text, one voice from these two really, really striking and important 19th century Americans. William Apess, the Native American preacher, orator, author, activist, and Frederick Douglass, the fugitive slave turned abolitionist and African American civil rights activist, orator, author, uh, leader, um, and and. Uh, uh, these are both pictures that capture them at a relatively young point, which is when these these respective texts of theirs were delivered. And those texts are the two that I'm just gonna quote from very briefly here. And I'm not gonna read all of these quotes on the next couple of slides. Um, in Apes's case, it's his last public speech. Actually, he dies tragically young just a couple of years after he delivers this speech, a eulogy on King Philip in downtown Boston, and in Douglass's case, it's his his really powerful 1852 address, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. These two speeches embody critical patriotism to me um, and exemplify multiple layers of this concept. Um, APES's eulogy, just even the existence of it, I would call critical patriotism, in 1836, at the heart of kind of ongoing celebrations of the revolutionary legacy and revolutionary figures and histories in Boston at the Odeon Theater, one of the most prominent theaters in the city that would also host people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau, among others, APES delivers a speech paying tribute to a Wampanoag uh, leader. King Philip, best known at the time and now for the war between the Wampanoag and the English that is eventually given his name. But Apis makes the case for him as a revolutionary ancestor and one who all Americans should view as such. So as you see in this quote, he says, not only that the immortal Philip is honored By his grateful descendants, by uh, Native Americans, Uh, Philip lived in the 17th century, so by Native Americans like Apes in the 1800s, he claimed Philip as a distant um, maternal ancestor, um, but by all Native Americans. But then he extends that further. So will every patriot, especially in this enlightened age, respect someone like Apes, who he calls um, very much a parallel to the immortal Washington and his revolution, his cause very much a parallel to the American Revolution. And throughout his speech, APES makes that case, an alternative critical patriotic vision of Native American history, figures, legacies, causes, communities as an American history that all patriots should honor and celebrate. Uh, Douglas in his speech, What to the Slave? um, offers an even more striking and bracing critique of mythic patriotism uh, when he directly turns the gaze to his audience and asks them why they would invite a fugitive slave like him to give a 4th of July address and makes the case that that mythic patriotism of the fourth has nothing to do with the reality, the lived reality ongoing reality of his life and of the world of slavery that his life was so connected to that this 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty, that mythic patriotic space to call upon him to join you in these celebratory joyous anthems were mockery and irony. But neither speech ends there. And again, critical patriotism to me is also always about the idea of pushing forward towards something better. And both men give their speeches, frame their speeches, include in their speeches that vision, particularly in their conclusions. And these are just brief pieces of their longer conclusion. In APES's case, he explicitly turns to his audience as well and makes the case for moving toward a future that can be more shared, more collective, where peace and righteousness can be written on all of our hearts and hands. That collective hour is really important there. This is not about Wampanoag or Anglo. This is about a shared American future that Apes hopes he and his audience can move toward, in part by engaging these histories, as he's tried to do throughout the speech. Douglas makes the same case um, in many ways in his conclusion that he is not discouraged, that he, do- he does not despair. He has hope still. That hope is partly because of American ideals and his attempt to reclaim them. declaration, the great principles, the genius of American institutions, but it is also precisely because, he argues, if we can do this work of engagement, of critique, of recognizing the darkness, the dark picture, then we can move toward that light. We can move toward that possible better future, that more ideal collective union. So his speech likewise ends on, on such a note and that back and forth of critique and that patriotic vision of both the best of us and a future that can truly exemplify it together is at the heart of both of these men and and many visions of critical patriotism. Uh, Bringing that up briefly to the 20th century, two more figures I'll just very briefly quote. um, The poet Langston Hughes, principally poet, and the the author, essayist, novelist, activist, um, James Baldwin, and just an individual quote from each of them or a text from each of them that embodies their critical patriotism in the 20th century. Hughes, perhaps his most critical patriotic poem is one of my favorite American poems, Let America Be America Again. The title of it, unfortunately, echoes a very, very different recent phrase, but Hughes is making a a profoundly different case. In this poem, he acknowledges the kind of mythic mythic patriotic ideals of the nation, the dream it used to be. But he challenges those ideals with this parenthetical voice of an African-American speaker. America never was America to me. There's never been equality for me in this homeland of the free. But then the poem itself moves toward that critical patriotic hope of a future, of possibility. If we do this work and move forward together, oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Um, so again, both in the body and in the conclusion an embodiment of these two forms, these two layers to critical patriotism, the critique of the myths, but then the push for the true ideals. And I don't, I don't know of any quote that better expresses critical patriotism in one line than does James Baldwin's from his um, title essay of his collection notes on a native sign from 1955, where he writes, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. And my favorite part of that quote, which is the epigraph for my book is exactly for this reason, at the heart of this critical patriotism is the fact that these two things are linked, the love and the criticism. They're not just two parts, they are inextricably interconnected, exactly for this reason. And in his 1984 preface to that collection, Baldwin talks about that moment and expressly defines it as a critique of the mythic patriotic America um, that had so brutally and specifically excluded him but an argument for his American identity nonetheless, to locate myself within a specific inheritance and to use that inheritance precisely to claim the birthright, to claim that identity. That's again, at the heart of a critical patriotic move, I would argue. So to 20th century of voices and texts. And then to bring us, uh, from my conclusion here, back up to the present where I started, not in January, 2021 this time, but with two examples of critical patriotism from the last few years, my uh, cover, a figure in Colin Kaepernick and then a, yeah, an even more recent a critical patriotic embodiment in Alexander Vindman. In Kaepernick's case, very early in his protests in 2016, he makes his critical patriotism clear. And yet he continues to be defined, of course, even to this day by many as unpatriotic anti-American, un-American, which reflects that exclusionary form of mythic patriotism, because he's very clear about the critical patriotism that is motivating his protests. As in this 2016 interview with Yahoo Sports, where he writes, having talked about uh, racial prejudice, racial discriminations, racial violence, to me, this is something that has to change. And when there's significant change, and I feel like that flag represents what it's supposed to represent in this country, I'll stand So explicitly making the case for how his active and critical patriotism reflects a challenge to realities, a challenge to the ideals of which we are falling so short, and a goal of moving forward closer to those ideals. And then one other embodiment of critical patriotism I'll end with here is Alexander Vindman, the uh, longtime Army officer and National Security Council member who uh, was a whistleblower on the uh, President Trump um, phone call to the president of the Ukraine, and who thus became part of the the testimonies and trials for the first Trump impeachment in late 2019 and early 2020. Um, And in his prepared remarks in early 2020 to the Congressional Committee in particular, we see a real embodiment of again, a vision of active service and sacrifice for the nation and of how his critical uh, work, his whistleblowing, his his critique of what was happening was directly um, came directly out of that, that legacy not only his own, but his family's, his father's, that having seen the authoritarian world that his father fled from of the USSR, um, that it was his honor to represent and protect this great country, part of the privilege of being an American citizen and public servant, and that that act of patriotism was precisely why he was there, why he was offering that whistleblowing, uh, taking that action that critical action, certainly criticizing the current president administration, and in many ways, the current narratives of the United States, because of that vision of America, that my sitting here today, he said to his father, very movingly at the end of his remarks, is proof that you made the right decision to come to this nation, that it embodies that nation and the ideals that had brought them there, and that he had continued to try to serve and fight for across his career. Now, like Kaepernick, Vindman faced significant um, pushback and targeting for his remarks. He was fired from his job, um, as Kaepernick has never been able to work again in the NFL after his protests, among other effects for both men. And we see that time and again with critical patriots, that they they have been affected greatly, targeted and affected greatly um, as a result of their, their voices, their activism, their critical patriotism. But they persist. They endure. Um, both of these men have and so have All of the other critical patriots um, that I've briefly talked about here, they continue to fight that fight, to offer that alternative. And in closing here, I'll leave this up for a second as I'm closing so you can reach out beyond these few minutes if you're able. And in closing, I'll just note one more time that there's two main goals I have in this project. One goal is to just offer a glimpse of patriotism that is not one thing that goes beyond perhaps the most familiar vision or definition of what that might include, to note the alternatives, the multiple possibilities, and to note moreover that they have been present at every moment in American history, that there has never been just one vision. There've always been multiple possibilities for what patriotism means, for what it means to be a patriot, and thus what it means to be an American, to follow up my last book, We the People and its focus as well. That's one goal. And then the second goal goal—it's become clear here, I'm sure, I try to trace these um, as rigorously and with as much nuance as I can, But I do very much at the end of the day want to make the case for critical patriotism, want to make the case for remembering the examples and models of it and for carrying it forward in our present moment. I believe the only way to to genuinely move the nation toward a more perfect union is to continue to both remember, commemorate and live up to the model of critical patriotism, the models of critical patriotism that we have and that we continue to have around us today. It's a vital role in pushing the nation forward toward a more perfect union. And it's a vital way to make sure that ideas of patriotism, like ideas of America, can be part of that effort and should be part of that ongoing work um, in following up those long legacies and in building on them into our future. So I'm going to unshare my slides. And thank you very much for for listening. And I we have a good 15 minutes here to Hopefully, keep the conversation going.
2: Great, thank you so much, Ben. Uh, We will uh, jump right in. So, uh, first question is: What was the? You know, you just described, you know, your your mission for this book. But what was the catalyst in writing uh, this 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 new book for you?
1: It goes way back, actually, um, and it goes back in particular here in Massachusetts to Patriots Day, to that particular holiday. Um, I have this daily blog. And so I'm always looking for things to write about in sort of American studies ways. And so as early as 2011, which was the first full year of the blog, I wrote a post about patriotism inspired by Patriots Day. And at that point, I was calling them the sort of easier way and the harder way to be a patriot. The easier way was participating in things like the, the singing of the national anthem, which, again, I wasn't trying to be critical of, but it's more of an easy action that we can all take. And then the harder way was the idea of sort of taking action to try to push the nation forward, which is a harder way to to be a patriot and one that leads to a lot of negative consequences as we've seen here. So about a decade ago, I started to think about that idea of sort of different versions of patriotism. But then it was really 2016 that that really, I think, provided the push to start more actively thinking about this, not just the election of 2016 and all the narratives and conversations around it, but Kaepernick and his actions and other pieces of that moment as well that made me realize this isn't just a sort of abstract set of concepts. These are things that are affecting our community, our society, our day-to-day events, and that have a long history. And I want to try to think about that history to help us think about the present. That was kind of the origin point of the more specific project over these last five years or so.
2: Thank you. Uh, Our next question, um, can you speak to the role of grief as a crystallizing force in creating a picture of patriots slash patriotism? How have eulogies and other expressions of communal mourning public memory cemented the image of a particular figure or group as patriotic in ways that are hard to alter in a later period, despite a change in historical perspective?
1: Well, that's a really great question. Um, and it's really, I think it's it, its particularly great because you know, mythic patriotism, mythic narratives, they don't just exist. They don't just come out of nowhere, right? They get created, they get constructed. And so a big part of my interest in this project and, and just of my ongoing interest is thinking about how and where such visions are created and constructed because it then allows us to engage them and respond to them and make them a part of our ongoing conversations. And yeah, eulogizing is a really great example because if you think about say a community like the, the founding fathers, the founders, they've really been eulogized for 200 years by this point, right? Pretty consistently eulogized ever since their early 1800s or late 1700s in Washington's case deaths. And that constant eulogization, which happens through memorials and monuments and statues and so many other places, is a kind of continued practice of that, right? Of the grief of the loss of these these iconic figures, but of the celebration of a very idealized vision of that person of that life, of that identity, which is often included, of course, in a eulogy, that idealized celebration. And so I think if we think about that, not only just literally as happening at particular moments, which it certainly does, and some of those first ones were happening for revolutionary figures in the same time, APES offered his very, very different eulogy on King Philip, um, I think very purposefully calling it that for that reason, Philip was long dead by that time. Um, so there's particular moments like the eulogy, eulogizing of revolutionary figures in that early republic period. But I think even just to think about that as a broader mode of mythic patriotism, right, of these eulogies for a particular past that that, that should be celebrated in that narrative, commemorated, but not really critiqued, can't really be seen with nuance exactly, at least in the, in the traditional model of that genre of the eulogy, Uh, but then there's alternatives. And I think Apis is a great example. He tries to be pretty nuanced about Philip um, in that long speech, but at the same time, I'm making the case for why we should remember and why he's a part of our history. So the eulogy I think can be more nuanced but the traditional model is very celebratory. Grief wedded to idealized celebration of what has been lost. And I think that's a good narrative for a lot of mythic patriotism, not just in those moments of eulogy, but as, as it has worked overall.
2: Does critical patriotism pose any threats to the nation and our sense of ourselves as Americans?
1: I mean, I, I think it's always worth, worth thinking about the best and worst versions of different concepts and different, different perspectives and expressions. And so I would say that it is possible, for example, to offer critical patriotism that still defines an us and a them. And I think us versus them narratives have been at the heart of what I've been trying to challenge in my work for at least the last few projects and and really the whole of my career. And so it's certainly possible to offer a critical lens and a critical patriotic lens that still defines them, that still defines enemies. And I'll admit that at times I'm sure I'm guilty of this as well, such as when I look at, at those who took part in the January 6th insurrection. It's hard for me. Not to see them as a them that is opposed to me and and whatever we I would want to be part of. But I think ultimately that impulse, while it may have various ways it needs to play out or be debated, can't be at the heart of critical patriotism. The heart of critical patriotism has to be saying, how do we take our critiques, apply them to whatever histories, concepts, um, etc. and think about a future that we can share, a future that can be genuinely collective and communal. So I think absolutely critical patriotism can still fall into us versus them sort of separations and attacks, which still are divisive. Um, And even if they may say create an us that I feel more sympathetic to, that's ultimately divisive nonetheless. So I think the goal has to remain then the critique wedded to the vision of of a future that is shared, that is collective, at least among those who can be part of it, right? There are going to be, that's why it gets complicated. There are going to be viewpoints where it would be impossible Uh, Neo-Nazis are an example, right? It would be impossible for me to imagine a future United States where that viewpoint is equally a part of our collective conversations because it is intentionally destructive of others, right? But moving toward a future that that we can as a whole share is still the goal. It has to be the goal. And so I think that version of critical patriotism is is healthy and necessary. But one that creates them's that creates enemies, um, I think ultimately still divisive and destructive, even if at times I might sympathize with those who are being, uh, who are taking part in that. So I think there are different versions. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Did you, uh, when writing the book, did you find yourself encountering any kind of challenges?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, the biggest challenge in this case, well, two, one of them was that I didn't, uh, I mainly worked on this in a time where I didn't have access to archives. I wasn't traveling. I wasn't going anywhere. So a lot of this was based on, on a work that's digitized in one way or another. And, and that's why, for example, at the end of the book, I had this long like further reading section. And all of those are voices. They're mainly scholarly voices that everybody should read because they've been able to dive much deeper into things like the archives uh, than I have. And that's partly just by the design of the book. It's multi-part in every chapter. I'm looking at a lot of different things briefly. And so there's a much greater archival history out there that people need, of course, to keep learning about and encountering. And I wasn't able to do that in part for this year and a half of work and also just didn't, you know, chose not to make that a central focus. So that's one thing is that this is not archival. This is about using multiple voices and texts, uh, many of which or most of which were, were digitized and then I could access in that way. And then the other thing that I'll say is a challenge, I guess, is, again, trying, and I think I succeeded, I hope I succeeded, trying to do justice to even the most exclusionary mythic patriotic voices that I that I don't have any personal sympathy for. So the Confederacy is an example. In my Civil War chapter, I write about how the Confederacy used mythic patriotism about American history to make the case for the Confederacy, to make the case for their identity. I, I grew up in Virginia. I have a, lo- a long time antipathy to the Confederate States of America, but I tried in that part of that chapter to do real justice to their arguments, to their ideas, to how they were trying to use that mythic patriotism to make their case. And I think that's important, maybe especially if we're gonna ultimately challenge or, or or disagree entirely with a perspective to, to try to sort of do justice to its own narratives um, as we then challenge it as well. So that was another uh, challenge that I encountered, but one that I, I hope I was able to overcome, I, I certainly tried to.
2: So, very open-ended question because who can who can really say but where do we go next as a you know as a nation as a country how do we find that common ground that we so you know at the heart of it we talk about love love of our country uh, inclusivity how do we how do we move forward in such a decisive you know divisive
1: yeah um and if I, if I had an answer, then I guess I, I would market it and, and get wealthy on marketing. <laughs> but obviously I don't. But what I will say, one goal of, of all of my work, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about not just creating an us versus them or not just sort of reinforcing divisive narratives is I believe the figures I highlight who are critical patriotic voices and figures, for example, are ones that we can all celebrate, that we should all celebrate, that we should raise statues to, right? That we should commemorate, um, that they are embodiments of the best of our identities. William Apes is a great example. Mm-hmm. I challenge anyone to read him and not find him inspiring and moving and powerful and an embodiment of American ideals, just an embodiment of who we are. And I'll say sometimes it's pronounced Apesh, I go apes, I've heard of. Um, but in any case, just that's one thing I would say that as we move forward, there are histories and figures and stories that we can commemorate and remember and add to the conversation that that make us so much more in the present, so much more reflective of our diversity, of our shared, truly shared histories. Um, It's not just about say tearing down or critiquing uh, failures or, or the mythic patriotic version. I think there's work to be done there, but the most important work is adding, it's additive work. It's the collective work of better remembering the best of us. And I think, again, outside of like pure, you know, neo-Nazi or pure racist perspectives, the vast majority of us can and will be able to celebrate the William A. Passes of our history and to raise statues to them and to make them key embodiments of who we are. And if we could do that kind of thing, for example, that's not the only kind of work, of course, there's lots of work to be done, but that kind of work can fundamentally make the way we tell our, our stories, the way we remember our histories, inclusive, diverse, shared, without being just divisive or critical. It's about adding these inspiring emblematic Americans that I think very often, for example, have been critical patriotic voices.